trying to sort of market themselves to everyone, their copy ends up being so bland. You know, the website can look as beautiful, but if it doesn't say anything and the copy's terrible, you know, it's a fail really. So, you know, to be in the car where you've got motorcycle outriders and you've got police cars, lights flashing and you're flying along a road, it's kind of fun. Today on The Engaging Marketeer, I am speaking to Australian Angela Pickett, who has gone from the very unusual career path of being a foreign diplomat in Shanghai and Vietnam to being a copywriter just outside Adelaide to businesses across Australia. I'm going to find out quite what Angela did, how she did it, and, and, and what was it like being a foreign diplomat? You're, you're obviously a copywriter. And I am a copywriter. You, you are. We've had a lot of copywriters on this podcast, and they always have really interesting ways on how they get the information out of the client to put it down into into words. What process do you go through with clients to get that kind of information out of them that you need? So once upon a time when I first started, I thought if I just sent them a massive long document with lots and lots of questions that that would get them all the information I needed. Mm. And then I quickly realised that for a lot of them, and particularly if they're starting out, that if they knew all of that and they could write all of that, they probably would have had a crack at writing their own website copy. So now I find it's a much more iterative process. It's having a conversation and I much prefer, I'm very much a video call person these days. Um, I'd rather have a conversation where I can see the other person and we can just chat and obviously record what they're saying and get them to talk and talk about their business in their own words because I think sometimes they think when they start writing down about their business that they have to speak in a certain way and, yeah. you know, particularly if they're in that sort of professional services, which is a lot of what I deal with, they've got this preconceived idea of they've got to, to sound professional um, and instead I try and get them to chat as if they were telling a friend at a barbecue or, you know, they ran into someone in the supermarket and were explaining what they do. So I find that's really useful. I think the other best way to find out about their business is to see what previous customers have said mm. uh, and so whether that's testimonials that they've got or their Google reviews and, you know, because the, the, I, the thing I ultimately want to do is talk to the customer. We want to talk to the customer. We're not, we're not, we don't want to put on the website what their preconceived idea of their own business is yeah. and we want to answer the customer's questions. So being able to use words that other customers have, or clients have used in terms of explaining the problems that were solved for them um, is often some of the best, best ways to get content. Yeah, no, I I love that because it, it's essentially, you know, why do your customers like working with you? What is it they like about working with you? What what are the things that drew them to you? Because that's what other customers are also going to be drawn to. Whereas Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, one of the things I now, I guess, am much more comfortable, but perhaps when I started out I wasn't, um, is being able to say to, to clients right at the beginning, you know, this is this is a cooperative process. You know, if I knew about your business and everything that's in your head and I was a mind reader, I could charge a lot more for this, um, <laughs> but I'm not. Yeah. You know, I have to get it out of you. And, you know, 
And sometimes it can be hard to, to find the right words, but if we, it, it doesn't have to sound perfect. And that's where um, I'm working with a client at the moment who I sent her the brief and said, just have a crack at it. Just go through and see if you can fill in the bits that you can fill in. And, but don't, don't worry. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's not beautiful prose. It's dot points. It's links to documents, you know, cut and paste stuff if you want. Um, and then we had a conversation and, you know, she was saying, oh, I'm not a very good writer and I don't really know. And I said, yeah, but you've just explained the process that you go through and that's all I needed. And then we talked about some things about things that clients say to her on the phone. And I was like, that's, that's why this is, you, you've got to, I guess that's saying to clients, you've actually got to invest some time in it. You can't just go, I'm paying you to write my copy, see you by, come back to me with a finished website. <laughs> Um, And so that's why my process tends to be, you know, I'll do a bit of an outline draft and then we'll come back with a first draft. We'll talk about it again because sometimes I find as well it's not until you start to write things from, you know, looking at how you're going to solve that their customer's problem and they say, oh, no, that's not exactly what I do or, you know, the way they've explained it isn't clear or, you know, sometimes like that I think it is about, you know, it's a bit of a conversation, I guess, yeah. like anything. Yeah, conversation is exactly it. Um, I've, I've come across so many websites, and you mentioned professional services then, uh, such as IT companies, for example. So many websites that are built in the IT industry that haven't used the services of somebody like you, and they've written their own copy. And all that copy is is just a impenetrable downpour of jargon and tech-speak that talks about them and how long they've been doing it and what experience they've got and what qualifications they've got and what services they have and what servers they use and the technology they use. And it's just dross because it's written for them. Yeah, and it's written, you know, and it's almost, and I think there was this perception that websites were all about we have to show, you know, that we've got all this experience and that people will see that and they will, uh, you know, they will see that we sound professional and we know all the jargon and we've got all of this. But it doesn't mean anything to the person coming and looking. They want to see that, you know, you actually understand the problem I'm coming to you with and you're repeating that back at me. Um, You know, and I always use, and I think it was something, you know, something I guess you know, Kate Toon, who I know you've had on the podcast, have, sort of yes. has drummed into me over the years is the we <laughs> we test and the we, we do we. this and we do that. And, you know, and it's so true. And I'm, I look, I was guilty of it. I, when I left diplomacy, I had a consultancy when I first arrived here in South Australia and I wrote this. I wanted to, I was going to be a trade consultant and come out of government and I was trying to sound what I thought my perception was about sounding professional mm. and it was like we did this and we do that and the ridiculous thing was there was no we, it was just me. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the things I say to people as well, like mm. don't don't try and pretend, like build a relationship, don't try and pretend, you know, that your company's any bigger than, than you yeah. because that's actually sometimes the selling point. People want that personal connection mm. and... They want to develop that relationship and they want to see who it is they're working with. They don't want, you know, that big, that idea of this big company with, you know, all the bells and whistles because that's not necessarily what they're looking for. 
No, I, I, I love that. I love Kate's wee wee because Kate's fascinated by wee wee and she goes on about it a lot. Uh, but it, it, it also, it transcends to sales and it transcends to public speaking as well. Because I've, I've done a lot of public speaking coaching. Um, and as we were talking about earlier, I've just done a TEDx, drop that in there. Um, done a lot of public speaking coaching. And one of the things that you're, you're taught about it when you're doing a presentation for people, a lot of people stand up particularly at networking groups like BNI, for example, which is a networking group I'm part of, they'll stand up and they'll say, this is me, this is how long I've been doing this, this is where I started the company. Nobody gives a toss. It's about you. You focus, and it's all about you. So when you're, whether you're doing a presentation or whether you're doing copy for a website or whether you're doing sales on a one-to-one basis or a one-to-many basis, talk about you, talk about the target client, talk about the audience. Mm. Because if you talk about yourself... They'll just switch off. Everybody starts a presentation talking about themselves. And I've never understood why people do that because it's the way we, we seem to think that's the format for it. But the way you approach copy is the way it should be approached for all sorts of sales and public speaking. You focus. Talk about you. Talk about the client. Talk about the client's problems, not the website that you're, you're writing the content for. Yeah, and I think that's where it comes back to, you know, one of the first things that I say to people is, you know, who is, who is your customer? Like we really, and I think that's one of the things that people really miss and particularly when they're starting out and they just, you know, they're happy to work with anyone with, you know, a pulse and a credit card kind of thing. Mm. You know, they're not, and in trying to sort of market themselves to everyone, their copy ends up being so bland that they're not attracting, you know, anyone at all. So, you know, I think in terms of, and I think that's where sometimes you find businesses defaulting and you can pick those websites where they've written it themselves because yeah. they're like, well, I'll just write what I know. I haven't yet worked out who my customer is. That takes it, you know, and, and again, not just the, you know, Fred's 45 and lives with his mum and likes doing macrame and, you know, walking on the beach kind of thing. You know, what are they worried about? And it was I was chatting with this client the other day and I said, oh, I've asked you the, you know, your potential clients' beliefs and fears and desires, and mm. and you've said not applicable to beliefs. And I said it is applicable. Like, what would be their beliefs about? What do you think they believe about that you're in and the particular service that you offer? Um, you know, and and it was an interesting conversation because they just had never looked at it from that perspective. They were sort of really doing the you know, I do this and I offer these services and I was like, yeah, that's fine. But we want to kind of tap into that, you know, emotional side of it. And it really is about understanding that. So sometimes I think it can get really, you know, it can be a bit of soul searching about going, well, I've got to decide. You've got to really, I've got to get clear on who it is that I'm working with um, and who I want to talk to. And because that would depend, you know, that would change what I'm going to actually say. No, a hundred percent. I love what you said there as well about uh, if, if you try target anybody, you end up targeting nobody, and that, that that's a common thing where business owners say, "Oh, I'm looking for introductions to anyone, really. Any, I, I can work with anyone." Oh, do I know anyone? Mm, can't think of anyone specific because you haven't been specific. You need to work out your niche. Yeah. Work out exactly who it is you want to do business with. Because yes, you might be able to do business with anyone, but you can't target anyone with marketing but you can target people specific 
And if you know exactly who they are, exactly what their problems are, exactly what their beliefs are, as you have said, you can resonate with them when you create the copy, create the content, create the marketing, that they're going to go, ah, this company gets me. They get me. Yeah. I want to work with them. And I think that's it. I think, I think especially for a lot of particularly solo business operators, and especially if they're just starting out or they're going through a period of, you know, where, you know, I guess at the moment, you know, the economy's, you know, pretty shaky in a lot of places and people are concerned. And so they're just like, well, I'll just work with anyone. But as you say, anyone out, like it's not going to resonate. And so basically, you know, you're more likely to get a result by actually being specific. And it doesn't mean you could get someone from a completely different, you know, industry. And and that's what I say as well. It doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to niche by industry or it doesn't, it could be that you're just going to do, for me, I'm really focusing now on website copywriting and sales page copywriting. And so it's very clear, you know, who I work with and the sorts of people I like working with and the sorts of things I can offer them doesn't mean I'm going to say no to working on, you know, a government website because I've got that background. But those are often those word of mouth referrals. It doesn't matter if that's not really clear on my website. But if I'm trying to target uh, and attract new business, Mm. I've got to be really specific about it. And that's, you know, I think that's the thing, whether it's being location specific and really drilling down on that and working out Um, You know, I'm working with a client at the moment and she's a dream in a lot of ways because she's just gone, I'm just offering this service in this particular area. I've set up some referrals. If I get someone from another area, I can refer them on. Um, But it means we can be so clear on, Mm. you know, exactly the services she's offering, exactly where she's offering it, and and then using her experience to go, right, well, why the, you know, what have your previous people come to you for? And then really tap into that. So yeah, she knows what yeah. she wants. She knows exactly who she wants and what she's going for. That that's unusual. Yeah, yeah. unusual I mean, with clients, isn't it? I mean, I, I said to her, you know, this was someone who came back with, you know, briefing, you know, com- apologized that she hadn't done it very well, and I'm like, yeah, but you've done it before <laughs> our meeting and you filled it all in, and and we've got a starting point to now have a conversation. And I can now see where there are some gaps that I can now ask you some really specific questions. Um, and I think that's really useful. It was also refreshing in that she said, you know, I'm not the cheapest, but she also could explain why she wasn't and she was comfortable in being able to say, well, you know, there are people cheaper than me, but this is what you get from them. Um, so she understood like her value as well. Yeah, and she really understood that. And I think... Mm. It's again having those conversations with clients, and and again, I think it's for me, it's been really targeting those people that really understand. And so, you know, I, I tend to work now with people who understand the value of a copywriter. Um, mm. And I think, again, that's been that experience. But then also, likewise, I charge at a rate now that pretty much anyone that's going to engage me has gone, yeah, actually, I'm willing to invest in that. I'm not having to try and convince them that spending money on a copywriter, you know, is a good idea um, because that's, you know, that's such a challenging thing to get those people that are like, well, I've paid, I've spent all my money building that website, but that's all right. I can fill in the gaps myself, you know. I wrote 
I wrote an essay in year nine that got an A, <laughs> so I'll be fine. I can I can write my own copy. So yeah, no, I mean the the reason we 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 offer copywriting, you see, for our clients, and the reason we do that is I've been doing web design for since the nineties, which makes me feel very very old. And every single website that we've done, they've always encountered the same issue with finishing the website, and it's always been the client producing the copy. And any web designer listening to this will hear the same thing, that they'll do the design for the website, the, web, the client will go, oh, yeah, I like that, or move that, or quite often make the logo bigger. Um, they'll have the design done, they'll do the build for the website, the website will be built, the client will click around the website, yep, I like that, that's really good. Okay, all we're waiting for now, Mr. Client, is the content to put in it. Yeah, yeah, I'm still working on it, I'm still working on it. And it never comes, because clients want to do anything, anything but write their content. They just don't want to do it. They hate doing yeah. it. It's just so uncomfortable well, for them. It's the same way when you're trying to write your own content. It, it's really, it's really hard. It's yeah. hard to write about yourself, and it's hard when. And I think that's it. There's, there's a lot of people, and I love working with web designers and web developers that get that because. Mm. I guess one of the things and one of the reasons that I went down with this, you know, I got really caught up on this, you know, crappy copy on a beautiful website, you know, is like cardboard boxes in your brand new house as your furniture because you've just wasted all of that money that you had. You you know, the website can look as beautiful, but if it doesn't say anything and the copy's terrible, you know, it's a fail really. You know, yeah. at best it might be sort of a, static digital business card kind of thing. Um, and I think that's where web developers who can explain to people the copy is as important as what we're building, um, you know, are so valuable because I, I think, you know, people assume that, oh, well, that's all right, I can fill those. It's just a template. I'll just fill the gaps in myself. And as you say, particularly if they're starting out or if they're building a new website because business is really taking off, they don't have, A, they don't have time to do it. No. They don't know what they need to write. <laughs> they only write it from the perspective of the business because they really don't understand. Um, and, you know, that's the skill in it. And so while it seems like, oh, well, I, I know how to write because I did it at school, but I can't build a website, it's, it's sort of just as technical and just as important. And that's before we even start talking about, you know, Search engine optimization. So, mm. well, yeah, seen, seen as you, you on that seen, seen as you've brought it up, let's go into that. How do you think content and copywriting actually plays off against SEO? Because there's a lot of things in SEO that could be seen to be against copywriting. That they almost have different opposing practices. How, how do you make the two work together, and, and how does that work for you? I think, I mean, at the end of the day when I'm writing copy, I'm focused first and foremost on the client. So even if I've done all the, the keyword research and I've identified focused keywords and looked at, you know, how we want to optimise the copy to go out of, the, uh, you know, after those particular keywords, first and foremost is about writing for the, for the ideal client. It's, you know, it's not just about writing so that it gets found. I mean, we've all read those and seen those websites where, you know, the same keyword's been stuffed in a million times or they've written 16 different pages for the florist because they want to target 16 different towns or something like that, but all the copy's the same. Um, so I think they can work together. Um, and, again, I think well-built 
websites that Google loves that are fast and, you know, aren't clunky and, you know, don't have any extra gump floating around on them complement really well-written, succinct, clear copy. So, you know, to me, I think they I think they work together and I don't think you can have one without the other. Mm. Um, you know, that's the other thing. I could I could write the most gorgeous copy in the world, but if the website is badly built um, and hasn't been optimised, you know, all my beautifully, you know, researched keywords and I could write, you know, a description and title tag and put all the keywords in the right places but if the web- website itself is is crappy you know mm. it's not going to work either so yeah. yeah i think they work together and i don't think you know i really don't think you can say you know i can write copy without um i can write website copy without really having a, a good understanding uh, of, of SEO as well, um, but mm. the same with understanding SEO is understanding that the copy is just as important. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you went down that route then, because there's there's a lot of people in SEO that just think about Google. They don't think about the user at all. All they think about is, is this going to rank? How can I get this ranking here? How can I make this page faster? How can I get more keywords in here? And they lose track of the fact that the actual purpose of the website, the purpose of SEO, isn't to rank a page higher, which will shock a lot of people. It's to get more business for the website, which means it needs to appeal to the user using the website, the target customer. And if it doesn't do that, then it doesn't matter where it ranks because... The client's not going to get more well, exactly. business. They're going That's to waste money. You see, you see these agencies saying, you know, I can get you to rank for for hundreds of keywords. It's like, well, big deal. Are they? Yeah. Do they mean anything to the clients that I'm looking for? And I mm. sure I might rank, but am I ranking for something that the person that I want to work with mm. that is going to click buy now or sign up, um, you know, for a discovery call or whatever? Is that what they're actually looking for? Because mm. you know, it could be. Yeah, it could be stuffed with all that keyword. It might rank really well, but if no one's looking for it, mm. um, or the wrong people are looking for it, well, what's yeah. you know what's the point? Which which all comes back to what you were saying earlier, and it's about knowing who your target customer is. If you don't know that, yeah. then the content is going to be wrong. It's going to be irrelevant. The SEO is going to be wrong. The traffic to the website is going to be wrong. Nothing's going to work if you don't know who your target client is. Hmm. And I think that's the thing. I think people sort of get really nervous about, well, I might be excluding someone. Mm. And it's not that you're excluding. And I think that's where, you know, they try and catch, you know, we were talking earlier about that anybody and mm. they're trying to sort of put out this broad net. But that broad net doesn't actually, you know, it's it's got big holes in it kind of thing, whereas just that smaller one, you mightn't get as many. And the, the reality is for a lot of us and for a lot of small businesses, we don't need a hundred clients at a time. Um, you know, we need five or six of the really well-paying um, dream clients, and to do that well, that then keeps those referrals coming or gets that great testimonial. I mean, we could all work with loads and loads of really crappy clients, and hmm. you know, it doesn't really do us. It doesn't do our businesses any good, and they're never going to be those ones that will refer us again. They're going to be the ones that we, you know, tear our hair out and wonder why we did it because we charged less than we knew we should have and you know so I think there's a lot to be said you know it's it's it goes back to and it's a bit like you copy on your page it's it's quality over quantity as well 
No, that that's a really good business lesson that um, people often take a while to learn there, what you've said, and it, it's the people that you charge less to. And you talked about your client earlier, who she knows that she's more expensive than her competitors, but she's okay with that because she's got a value. And if you, and I've made this mistake in the past before, I'm sure a lot of people listening will have, if you charge less for your services to win a client, you do discounts for clients, or you do, God forbid, pro bono free work for people, we found, I don't know what, if you found this, we found that they tend to be the ones that are the biggest headaches. They tend to be the ones that expect the most, give the least, and are the ones that cause the most problems. Definitely. Definitely. And I think that's been the most interesting thing over the four or five years that I've been doing it, that every time I've increased my prices slightly and I've gone after a slightly more, um, I guess, experienced client, who really values themselves and can afford has made the decision to invest in copywriting, they're just so much easier to work with. Mm. Um, it's the ones I think where someone's told them they really should do it, they really don't have the budget, they nitpick over it, they're really unsure about investing in the copywriting, but I think that's also because they're really unsure about where they are in business and what they're doing and they're second-guessing themselves and they're the ones that are often, you know, I got my the friend next door to look at it or I got my, you know, my gym instructor or, you know, mm. at, and they, they just want reassure. And I, and I think that's the thing. It's just at that point it's reassurance um, that they're looking for, that they've done the right thing. But, yeah, they can be really hard clients to, to actually work with, whereas I think people who are happy to pay and, and to invest and see it, I guess that's it, who really do value it as an investment in their business. Mm. Um, you know, the same with people who value having their website built properly, um, spending money on regular maintenance of their website. They know that it's an investment in the, you know the the long term future of their business, and so yeah. they're not resentful of it, and they're happy to be guided, um, and they're happy to put the effort in to get really good copy or a really good website built. Yeah, whereas the people who want to do it on the cheap, yeah, as you say, the people that want to maybe use Wix or build the website themselves or get a guy down the pub to do it for fifty quid, is often often the way. They're the ones who don't value it. They're the ones that don't see it as an investment. It's just an expense, something I've got to have. It's not going to earn any money for me, so I just want to get it as cheaply as possible. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it says. They're not the clients that you want. They're not the clients that we want because it just doesn't work for us. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I mean, and I think that's the thing. Like, there's, there's those people that I guess they just haven't, they just don't understand, I guess, the value of the website. I mean, really, sorry, that's my child just dropping things in the garbage bin. Um, <laughs> they don't really understand the value of it and they don't understand that, you know, your website is 24-7. It's your business operating, you know, it's your shop front that's open all of the time. So, you know, why wouldn't you, you know, put your best foot forward to be a bit cliched on it because it's, it's always there, um, you know, and it's the same with people who say, oh, well, I don't really need a website. You know, all my clients are on social media. Um, 
you know, I, I don't really need it. That's fine. I get all my, you know, I get all my referrals from word of mouth or, mm. you know, and and I think that's, you know, again, a really misguided view to, to take. <laughs> I love it when people say that. We get all our referrals from word of mouth. We don't need a website. It's like, well, how many, how much business would you get if you had a website? Yeah, well, exactly. And, would, and are they the right word of mouth referrals? Are you yeah. doing them because that's the only people that you've got coming to you? Wouldn't it be better if you could actually choose to work with people who've actually done their research and have, yeah. have found you um, because they've picked, been looking for the right you. thing? Yeah. And yeah. We, we spoke to one business once many years ago. And she was in the the garden, the, the sprinkler business, you know, for um, like cricket pitches and football pitches, so sprinklers. And she actually said, and, I, and I've always remembered this to this day because it's one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard. She said that they don't get any business from the internet because they they, they don't market their website, but nobody buys sprinklers online. Really? I I I think. Amazon would disagree with that. Um, I'm pretty sure there's websites that sell these online. What she meant was none of our customers buy sprinklers online because, caveat what she didn't say, they don't sell sprinklers online. Anything online, yeah. So if you don't sell online, obviously your customers don't buy online. But other people, your competitors, absolutely are selling online and making a success out of it. So why don't you like try it and see the experiences that they're getting and the successes that they're getting. Don't dismiss something because you haven't done it. You haven't success, haven't had success with it. It's always it always weirded me out that 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 phrase because it was one of the bizarre naive things. And she was a big business as well. It was a yeah. big business, but completely dismissed the internet because uh, our customers don't buy sprinklers online. No, because you don't sell them online. <laughs> you don't sell them online, and if they were buying them online. They wouldn't be coming to you because you no, can't they, help them. They'd so. be going to someone else, which is what they're doing. At, uh, at, anyway, you can't help some people. You just no. can't help. No. No. So. And again, is- that's where, you know, focusing on the people that you know, you know, and targeting mm-hmm. those people that actually can work with us and want to work with us and are prepared to invest in it. Um, mm. you know, we can't change the minds of everyone um, that might and see the value in it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned working with government earlier on because you've got experience in that. And I would be totally remiss if I didn't touch on this. You were a diplomat. A foreign diplomat. I was. I was how, a foreign diplomat, indeed. How, how does somebody get into that and, and, and what does that entail? <laughs> um, I guess, you know, I... I I went through university, I did a marketing degree and a law degree. I got to sort of the second last year of university and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Back then in Australia, you would sit this, what they call the public service test. Um, Depending on the marks you got, you were allowed, you know, you were invited to apply or suggested you apply for various government departments. Is that something everyone does, the public service test? Really, but it was sort of one of those, you know, I guess one of those things that seemed like a, you know, they advertise it at uni. Oh. You think, oh, well, I'll go along and and do this. And look, I think it had been one of those things that I'd toyed with. I, um, 
as a six-year-old, I actually lived in the UK for about four months because my dad had worked out, was working mm. overseas recruiting. He and my mum had actually met on a working holiday years before. I'd then been on exchange. So I guess for me the idea of working overseas was always kind of part of the the family story and what I thought mm. I would do. Um, so, yeah, I applied. I got through. Uh, I started, I spent a year in Canberra. Uh, being trained, I guess, and learning all sorts of things and pretty much threw my hat in the ring really early on and said there was a posting coming up in Beijing and I said, yes, thank you. My best friend who I'd met joining the department, she'd just been posted. Uh, so, yeah, I was successful and spent a year learning Chinese in Australia and then another year in Beijing and then I had another three years working, came back to Australia worked on trade agreements and all sorts of things, had my family and then took a posting to Vietnam uh, at the beginning of 2011 and that was kind of the end of my career. So I'd had 15 years and I had a bit of a moment where I was kind of doing the same things that I'd done 10 mm. years before um, except I was slightly more senior and I had slightly more experience um, but I could sort of see there was a bit of same old, same old to it. And mm. um, as much as I loved the experience and the people I got to meet and the places I got to travel, um, I think that was where I started to see that, you know, maybe it was time to do my own thing mm. and, you know, my kids were start about to start school and I wanted something that I could be a bit more flexible. And so, yeah, we not only I not only left my diplomatic career but we – moved to a completely new state uh, where we didn't really know anyone and kind of nine years ago set up a new lifestyle, I guess. So, so, so what what does an Australian diplomat in, in Beijing, did you say? Yeah. What does an Australian diplomat in Beijing do? So back in these days, so this was early 2000s, so it was really the height. At that stage, the relationship was, you know, really growing. And mm. so it was a lot of trade relationships. It was a lot of organising, visiting delegations and, you know, um, escorting ministers, ministers to meetings and taking notes and uh, hosting various groups of business people or dealing with, Chinese rules about which bits of Australian meat could come in or, you know, what other product. And and, the, and Vietnam was the same and that was where I had this moment where I was like, wow, you know, I was fighting to get that product in in China 10 years ago and now I'm having the same, mm. the same issue. So, you know, a lot of liaising with both the locals but also with other foreign diplomats. On my last posting I did a lot more around um, I guess media relations and cultural relations and sort of promoting the relationships. So uh, I managed, we were only the second embassy to be allowed to have Facebook, um, right. which seems crazy now, but back then social media was a very, very new and foreign thing mm. uh, for, for an embassy to kind of be dealing with. So I'd managed that and then managed a big program of, of activities for we were marking 40 years of the relationship between Vietnam and Australia so I was organizing I was bringing over Australian dance troops and science museum exhibits and ballet dancers and artists and all sorts of things so you know the variety in the job is probably one of the things that I love now about what I do I like working with lots of different clients and 
learning about lots of different things. And that was one of the fun things, I guess, about being a diplomat. There was always different different issues coming up, whether it was banking or agriculture or mining. And so you're sort of learning about those issues and meeting different people. Mm. See, when, when, when I think of, of being a diplomat, all I think about is like riding around in black limousines, waving diplomatic immunity cards about and having swanky... <laughs> Swanky do's with, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to be cliched here in the UK. It's Ferrero Rocher. It's, it's what advertise, what you have at diplomatic events. I don't know if that's true or not. It's all just parties, <laughs> ball gowns, and, and, and smoothing people. Is it, was, was, it, was it like that? There was a little bit of that. But was there, there really was a little bit? Of... Well, there was, you know, there were occasionally, I mean, look, there's, there's a lot to be said about when you're in the motorcade with a minister and you've got police cars and, you know, I think the fact that I was on postings in China and Vietnam, which are both countries that do pomp and ceremony very well. Mm. Um, obviously, you know, communist countries, it's a bit easier for them to just go, we're closing all the roads to the airport so <laughs> yeah. that this delegation can go through. <laughs> um, so, you know, to be in the car where you've got motorcycle outriders and you've got police cars, lights flashing, and you're flying along a road, it's kind of fun. Um we did have lots of balls. We did lots of fundraising. I admit, you know, it's one of those things. Went to loads of balls overseas. Probably haven't been to one since I've been back in Australia. Have a whole yeah. wardrobe that doesn't get worn. Um, but sometimes it was just sitting in my office pushing, you know, not necessarily pushing paper, but writing reports and, you know, doing research and being on the phone and sending emails. And so I guess that was where there's part of the job that's really, you know, you meeting presidents and prime ministers and you know prime ministers of other countries and all sorts of things mm. but sometimes it's just it's like any other job you know there's always the bit that looks glamorous um you know and there were lots of cocktail parties and events like that but i mean sometimes after a while especially if you had a week where you were seeing the same people over and over it's like oh you again like you know <laughs> We're at another national day event. We've all been to the same six. This you've seen everyone already, and you haven't mm. seen your family. So, you know, I guess I guess like all jobs, there's there's pros and cons to it. Mm. So, but um, as, as and an it started to get a little bit political. Well, I imagine it was political. <laughs> but as 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 an experience, would you recommend that for somebody who's just leaving university to go into it? Hundred percent. I mean, it was an amazing. Get that sense of how things work behind the scenes and how relationships with countries, you know, we see a lot of the, I guess, the rhetoric on the news about different different things. But to see that and to, you know, there was a sense of satisfaction of, you know, being involved in a big visit, particularly where it was things like, um, you know, big multilateral meetings where everyone would get together and, you know, getting an agreement on something that worked really well or, you know, I was quite involved in a lot of the, the trade agreements that Australia was negotiating in probably sort of 2005 onwards and to see those things and get a result out of them. Mm. But even just some of the friends that I've made, um, you know, I made friends from countries that I wouldn't have otherwise probably, you know, got to meet and, and I guess thanks to things like social media now, being able to stay in touch with them um, and seeing their insight into things that are happening in their country. Um, so, you know, I've got a couple of friends who were parents at my child's school in Hanoi who are from Israel 
And it's so interesting seeing their social media posts talking about what's happening at the moment compared to, say, what I might see reported on the news. So, mm. you know, I just think just broadens out your perspective of things. Um, mm. And I guess, look, for me now, the skills in being able to walk into a room, to be able to strike up a conversation with anyone, to, you know, that negotiating skill to be able to draw information out of people, you know, they're all skills that I guess I now get to use um you know, as a, as a copywriter and as someone sort of building my own business networks, those skills still come in handy. Mm. So, yeah, so, I'm glad I did it. Excellent. No, it, it, to be honest, it, it sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. It sounds like something I would have liked to have done at that age. Um, and the, as you say, yeah, the, the fact that you're seeing behind the scenes gives you a different perspective on it. So when you can you can see politicians arguing over certain things. You actually know what's really going on behind that. It's not just uh, what this particular channel you're watching it on wants you to think about it, or this particular yeah, newspaper I mean, I wants really you to think. Yeah, I spent a lot of time. You know, a lot of the visits I did for whether it was prime ministers or foreign ministers, and there'd be a travelling media group. I spent a lot of time organising the media group. So just getting to know the journalists and getting to understand how they reported on these things and how, you know, how they managed it when a, when there's a big delegation, a big media pack travelling with the Prime Minister, how they actually manage that and work that out, um, you know, and in particularly in countries that are not particularly fond of the media uh, and the free press. So it was always interesting to negotiate, you know, whether they were going to be allowed to stand up and do a, a piece to camera standing in front of, you know, in the middle of Tiananmen Square or something like that. Mm. So, you know, I think it was interesting. But I think, you know, like anything, I think it's I think it's changed. I think the 24-hour news cycle has probably changed things a lot. Um, you know, I think social media has probably had an impact as well in terms of how politicians, you know, the amount of information they're putting out now, which was so different, um, you know, probably just the tail end of my time in Vietnam where we were starting to see uh, our foreign minister at the time tweeting and actually, you know, mm. using social media, which which really hadn't been a thing of the past and, you know, realising that perhaps sometimes the department doesn't have as much control <laughs> over the messaging <laughs> as as the individual so but yeah, <laughs> yeah no you know great experience um certainly something that as much as i missed the travel that went with it although that said i'm really really glad i wasn't on a posting somewhere in the last two or three years because uh i can't imagine it would have been that much fun to be posted somewhere um you know while most of the world was locked down so yeah yeah no, i think I've, i think i made the right choice moving to you know, regional Australian wine country. <laughs> well, that, that's, oh, I'd love to be in regional Australian wine country. You, <laughs> you, you mentioned building networks uh, when you came back. Now, I believe that's something that you're using yourself to grow your business as well. Is that right? Yeah, it's something that I guess, you know, I my dad was a, you know, a very good networker and I guess it was something I was kind of ingrained in me from the start, the value of, of relationships and getting to know different people and and being able to sort of get out there and explain what you do and not you know I for a long time I found the idea of selling myself and selling 
a bit icky, but I'm happy to go and chat to people about what I do. And so I've realised that was one of the things that, um, particularly living in a regional area, um, has been really, really valuable to just get out and take, you know, meet people at different events, get a perspective on what people are doing in business. But some of those relationships that I've made over the last, so we've, you know, we're in an area where, you know, we're in a regional centre, we've been here nine years. Some of those people I met really early on are now clients. Um, and because I've built up that level of trust with them, I've come to understand how their businesses work. Uh, I understand how the wine industry works. I understand how small business works. And so I think that's the sort of thing that really is that sort of face-to-face -face contact. And not just obviously, you know, face-to-face, -face, but, you know, I'm part of a couple of online communities and, you know, I, I wouldn't be in business without having those networks and those people to, to chat with and check in with because it can be lonely working for ourselves even when, yeah. you know, and not having um, those networks to actually ask questions of. So that's something I really, really focused on. No, that's a good point. When, you, when you're in business on your own, and it is just you, it can be very isolating. Uh, you, you don't have anyone you can ask questions about sort of tax or about financial investment or about HR issues or advertising or anything like that to have a network around you, not just to be feeding you business leads and to helping you with introductions, but to just be helping you with advice that you can just ask questions to. It, it's invaluable for somebody working for themselves in a business. Yeah, and I... And I think the thing we realise is that, you know, I think some people when they first start out feel like they've got to look like they know everything and they've got to have all of the answers and, you know, and I think I've been lucky that I've been part of a few communities where people are actually encouraged to ask questions and to share the ups and downs and to, you know, rather than falling in a heap because you've had a really bad call with a client and the project's kind of gone off the rails and thinking, well, I'm really bad at this, I might just throw it all in. But having people that you can say, hey, this is happening. And so whether it is within a group situation or whether it's, you know, a one-on-one -on -one thing saying, hey, this has happened. And it surprises me the number of times when, you know, something like that has happened and people go, oh, don't worry, that happened to me as well or, um you know, that's just part of it. Here's the way I dealt with it. And, and I, I think one of the things I've really realised is in the right communities, people are super generous. People are not judgmental. People, most people want other people in their community to do really well. Mm. Um, and so now I feel like, you know, I've had the benefit of a few years of, of being the one asking all the questions and, and taking all the advice. So it feels nice to be at a point now where, you know, particularly in my local community, I'm part of a, a business to business network. And so I can, you know, I spoke with for them last week and I can present and I can share the things I've learned along the way with other people. So, mm. um, and realizing that we don't have to all think we're a super duper expert in something, but even, you know, we can share the things that we've we've taken from our experience is is super valuable to others. Mm. What, what what's the business to business network you're in? So here in Australia, we have an organisation called Regional Development Australia. So uh, they operate across the country, and different regional groupings have different things. But um, about ten years ago, they set up 
a group because we're about an hour from Adelaide. So we're close enough to a big city that lots of people were either going to a big city to set up their business or to work, or then they were going to Adelaide to uh, seek out service providers. So what the person running it wanted to do was really connect and build a community of local service providers. So we've got accountants, we've got financial advisors, copywriters, web developers, photographers, graphic designers, all sorts of things, all sorts of consultants. And so businesses starting out pay a nominal fee and they can connect with one of us for about three hours. And it's just a good way to give someone starting out some introductory information about. Mm. So quite often for me, I'll sit down with them and work out, you know, get them clear on their their unique selling proposition or their one-liner that they can explain to people what they do and who they do it for. Uh, and then we might write a sort of longer blurb and then we'll look at, you know, maybe what their website structure should look like. Mm. Or if they've got a website, I'll do a bit of a review of it and suggest where we can fix yeah. it. And sometimes that leads to obviously ongoing business, but it's just a nice way of um, of being able to share that and, and really build the local business community because I think one thing we're seeing here in Australia is a real move to regional Australia and a lot more people um, setting up businesses outside of the capital city. So it's, it's nice being part of that community. That sounds like a great thing for new businesses to get involved with to get that support that that advice and, and yeah. very cheaply as well yeah definitely and you know sometimes we then find that some of those people then end up when that once they've set their business up they've got a skill that they're then able to um provide that skill to somebody else as well so um you know and then as part of it we do you know so i did a, a breakfast the other morning and just talked about website copywriting and um and again i think it's just it's about giving back and it's about, you know, realising that, you know, we're talking about networks and building communities. That sometimes it's a slow burn. It's not going out and throwing your business card at everyone you meet in a, in a networking group. Sometimes yeah. it's just a case of people getting to know you, getting to know your name, and then when it mightn't be them, it might be someone they know, um, and then saying, oh, hang on a minute, I know a copywriter, I'll get in touch with with you know, I'll give you their details. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's an important part of what we do. But I think and I think it goes hand in hand with having a good website. So you know, those word of mouth referrals are great. But I'm I'm going to expect that anyone that's referred to me is going to go and have a look at my website and check out who I am, mm. um, rather than just taking their mate say so that I'm you know I'm okay at what I do kind <laughs> of thing. So. You know, I think we mentioned that earlier. I think they're two important things. Yeah. Um, so you've you've been in business for a few years now. Is it four years? Did you say as a copywriter? Uh four years. About four years full time. Oh, so I sort of had a year where I where I dabbled and wasn't quite sure where I was going to mm. go and whether this was the thing to do. I'd been doing a bit of feature writing. Um, and yeah, it was about four years ago now that I had a great opportunity to work on a big government website project with another copywriting friend, mm. uh, was actually rewriting all of the Australian government travel advice. So, ah. uh, it was obviously perfect fit. Uh, hilariously, I think we finished that towards the end of 2019. Perfect uh, timing. And obviously... <laughs> 
perfect timing. Uh, no one needed travel advice then for a while. So, um, but that was a really great, a great opportunity. And I, you know, was really fortunate to then work with some more experienced copywriters and really learn their skills, not just about the actual writing, but the skills behind the scene in terms of how they ran their business. Um, mm. And I think, you know, for anyone starting out, I think that's where sometimes subcontracting isn't just a great way to actually earn an income and get some work, but you get the insights in terms of, you know, how do they set their briefing paper up or, you know, how do they use Slack or Asana or whatever tools they're using to run their business. Um, because I think for me, 50% of my business is running the business and 50% is copywriting. It's not, a, you know, I could be the, the best writer in the world, but if I don't run my business well, mm. there's, you know, it's not really going to work. So yeah, um, no, that's, that's, that, that's been something I've found super valuable. That, that's, that's great advice there, isn't it? Because I've been a freelancer before, back in 2004, I think it was. I, I did freelance work for a couple of years. And the hardest thing for freelancers is getting the work in but then you're doing the work, but while you're doing the work, you're not getting more work in. So you get those peaks and troughs of, I've got loads of work to do, and now I've got nothing to do, I need to find work, I've got loads of work to do. And it means you're getting paid irregularly because you don't have that pipeline of work in. And as a freelancer, that's one of the hardest things to get get control of, getting that pipeline of work and understanding that you need regular work and how to sell your products and how to sell your services and how to plan out so that you don't actually have no work for two months because that can be the worst yeah, thing in exactly. the world. Yeah, exactly. Needing that pipeline. And I think, you know, early on it was that someone would come to you and you'd be like, yeah, I can do it. And instead of realising now and actually being able to look at a, a sort of six-week plan and say, hmm. well, look, the next available slot I've got is in two weeks' time, we can kick off. And, hmm. you know, I think most people respect that you know that that they're not you mightn't be available straight away but i think when you're in that feast or famine kind of you know peaks and troughs of work it's usually when you take on the wrong project um i think is quite often what happens um but then you end up you know it's where mistakes are going to happen because you've taken on too much and you'll let people down so again i think that's been the big skill to really treat this i guess you know even as a solo operator to see it more as a business that I'm running rather than being a freelancer waiting for the next thing to be thrown my way. It is really about that, yeah. you know, marketing that profile, pitching for work and then managing that work and, and building up that and, and putting aside the time to market my own business, mm. um, which is which can be really, really difficult, but, you know, realising that you can't just wait until the work's dried up uh, no, to start, no. you know, pitching yourself for jobs. Mm. No, and you're right. And and when you tell people that you know I, I've got availability in five weeks' time or four weeks' time, don't be afraid to say that because that's not a negative. That's a positive. You'll get people on Facebook groups saying, "Oh, does anybody know a plasterer who can who's free tomorrow?" It's like probably, but he's going to be shit. That's why he's free tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> A good exactly. plaster is booked up for about three months. You want someone to come and have a go at it? Yeah, sure. I know. I know. There's, there's, there's Kevin down the pub. He'll come and have a crack at it. But your wall's going to be a mess. But people need to realise that. If you want somebody good, they're not available like that. They have work. They're busy. Yeah. The busy people are the best. 
Exactly. And look, most most clients' deadlines are not really, you know, there's nothing really driving it. It's just probably a date they've picked, they've decided they want something mm. done, um, you know, but if it's, if chances are it's something that's been sitting there for a while. And again, I think clients that come to you with that understanding that, you know, there is a, there will be a wait time, there is a timeline of how these things get done, there is a process to work through um, and being able to say, and I think that's one of the things that I've really been grateful to become more confident to just say, this is how it works, this is the process, this is what we need to do with each step, really spelling that out to the client from the very Mm. beginning so there's no surprises so that they understand that, you know, they've got to make a commitment as well. Mm. Um, I think once, you know, once I became really clear on being able to explain that, you know, it stopped all of those awkward awkward projects that would fall off the rails because, you mm. know, they wanted something done yesterday and they were prepared to just throw it at you and you fix it kind of thing. And it just, it just doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. And that brings me perfectly on to the last point then because we are pretty much out of time now. For those clients that do plan ahead, for those clients that don't want it done tomorrow, for those clients that do understand the value of copywriting, what's the best way for someone to get in contact with you? So the best way is via my website, which is angelapickett.com.au or via LinkedIn. They can find me as Angela Pickett. Uh, or on social media as Angela Pickett Copywriter. Fantastic. And I will put all of those links below the podcast. Uh, So if you're watching this on YouTube, it'll be in the description below. If you're listening on Apple or on Spotify or Audible or Amazon or something else, it will be in the description in in what's called the show notes below the podcast. So you can get in touch with Angela that way. Angela, thank you. That has just absolutely flown by. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that conversation. It, it, it was so quick, wasn't it? It was so quick. I, I, I loved it. Thank you very much.